we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, please, to pray with me. Father, we believe, we know that this is your word. And I pray that we never take it for granted, but rather take it for granite, that it's the rock upon which we live our lives. And so I pray now that you'll help us open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, most especially our hearts, that we would believe. And so now, uh, cause our attention to be focused. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, please. I want to read verses 1 through 15. We won't get there, all of that, but just to see at least that much of it. So 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, please. This is the word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their parts. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he had, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in the act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also, your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now we began uh, working our way through Second Corinthians in earnest uh, last August and so uh, now, after a few weeks off, we find ourselves back and we uh, have worked ourselves through chapter 7. So here we are in chapter 8. And if I could just jump right in, uh, what Paul is interested here in the church in Corinth by way of model or illustration from these churches in Macedonia is for them to understand what it means to have received the grace of God. I take that from verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God <clears throat> that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. And so he wants them to understand what it means to be a people, what it means to be a person, what it means to be a church who has received God's grace. How do we understand that? What should our lives be like because we have received the grace of God? Our lives should be different. You might remember, Paul said this rather shockingly, I think, 
And negatively, at least it comes across that way in chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, working together with, with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And, and you remember that, that just sort of took the air out of us. How could that be? How could that, how could that happen? How could we waste, if you will, the grace of God and receive it in vain? And, and we, we understood that to mean that to receive the grace of God in vain means to neglect it, to ignore what God has done for us in Jesus and not live according to that grace. So, so Paul's now in a positive, he's going to give us a model about what it means to have received grace. Now, there's a particular context, so we're not going to learn everything there is to learn about what it means to be uh, to have received the grace of God. But there's something significant here that Paul saw was lacking in the church in Corinth that wasn't lacking in the Macedonian churches. And, and, and what that was, frankly, the, the manifestation of the grace of God in their lives in the Macedonian churches was a sacrificial, voluntary joyful generosity. All right? That's what he saw. He saw that. He said that marked them, these churches in Macedonia. We, we know some of these churches. We know some of these churches because of, uh, of, of, they were founded by Paul. And we read through the book of Acts and we see when he went to Macedonia, he went to Philippi and he went to Berea and he went to Thessalonica or Thessalonica, depending on where you're from. Uh, but, uh, 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 I'm a Thessalonica guy, so just deal with it. But but uh, um, uh, but but those churches and 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 we know the situations there. We know from the letters I read earlier in our service from First Thessalonians. So Paul wrote a couple of letters to the church in Thessalonica. Wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. So we we know of these of these churches. What's fascinating in those letters is Paul never talks about giving, other than to say thanks. And so they're the model churches, if you will, these churches in Macedonia for uh, the church in Corinth. That's the context. Now, remember, when we think about the grace of God, we think about it primarily and rightly so, but primarily as unmerited favor from God. That's what grace is. It's never merited. If it's merited, it's not grace to say merited grace to say something nonsensical. So, so grace is never, ever merited. Our, our dear friend uh, Jerry Bridges, uh, by the way, Jerry isn't coming until April this year. So he's not coming at the end of, of um, the, early, the first week in February as he normally does. Not because of his health or anything like that. It's just a scheduling issue with navigators and everybody. So that's just, pardon me for the interruption here, but... but uh, you might be thinking, oh, Jerry's coming soon. No, no, actually he's not. It'll be the first Sunday in April, which will be the Sunday after Easter. So we'll be pleased to see him. He's doing well, by the way. Uh, but anyway, uh, Jerry defines grace, as we know, because he's given us this definition countless times. The grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. Don't tell him I read that because he thinks I've it memorized. Uh, I do, but, but I didn't want to get it wrong. But, but it's God's free grace that is its sovereign. It's, it's astounding to us. And again, this is the mystery of God's grace. It's sovereignly given. It doesn't have anything to do with our own merit, but has everything to do with who he is. 
So it's, 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 it's God's free, free from his perspective. He's free to give it or not give it because it's grace. You can't be compelled to give it or it wouldn't be grace. So it's God's free, sovereign, and unmerited favor that is we're undeserving of it, shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. So not only are we undeserving of this grace, we're ill-deserving. That is, not only do we not get what we deserve, we get what we don't deserve. We deserve to be, to be condemned, and yet we're loved and accepted. We deserve hell, we get heaven, right? We deserve his wrath, and we're forgiven. So, so it's not only that we don't get what we don't deserve, but we do get what we don't deserve in the blessing of it. That is the grace of God. And we often think of that as what we should. Think of that in terms of saving grace. This grace that comes to guilty sinners and and brings us to faith. Brings us to salvation. God's sovereign work in what we call regeneration. Where he changes our hearts so that we can can trust in him. Changes our hearts from from being against him to being for him, if you will. Uh, And this saving grace. A grace of what we call justification, where he declares us to be righteous in his sight. This saving grace of what we call adoption, where he adopts us into his family. All unmerited, of course, and, and, and that's very true. But there's another aspect of grace as well. Not simply saving grace, but also what we might call enabling grace. If this grace enables us, surely it enables us to come to faith. But it also enables us to persevere. It also enables us to, to, to put to death our sin and to live in holiness. It's enabling grace. We can see this in Paul's first letter as we have it to the church in Corinth. If you just turn back a couple of pages to your left to 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Uh, Whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so we believe, but... This first use of the word grace gives us a sense of saving grace. Suggests that he was a persecutor of the church. Obviously, he didn't merit this salvation. He was he was a guilty sinner, a murderer of Christians, and so he recognizes that. And so he says, "By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's God's grace in me that has brought me to salvation." But then notice about this grace, he says. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, this grace of God worked in him in such a way that it enabled him to work. It it energized him, it moved him, it motivated him, inspired him, it transformed him in such a way that he actually got on with living this out. He didn't receive the grace of God in vain. He didn't receive the saving grace in vain. But it went on, this grace still, to work in him, to cause him to live in a way that would be pleasing to God. Um, uh, John Calvin puts it like this. 
He says, for having said that something was applicable to himself, that is, I worked harder than all the rest. Paul corrects that and transfers it entirely to God. Entirely, I insist, and not just a part of it, for he affirms that whatever he may have seemed to do was in fact totally the work of grace. This was indeed a remarkable verse, not only for bringing down human pride to dust, but also for making clear to us that the way... uh, making clear to us the way that the grace of God works in us. For as though he were wrong in making himself the source of anything good, Paul corrects what he had said and declares that the grace of God is the efficient cause of everything. We should not imagine that Paul is merely simulating humility here. He's speaking as he does from his heart. And because he knows that it's the truth, we should therefore learn that the only good we have is what the Lord has given us gratuitously. The only good we do is what he does in us. And that it is not that we do ourselves, but that we act only when we've been acted upon. In other words, under the direction and influence of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of God's grace in us. Yes, it brings us to salvation, but it also enables us then to live this grace by his Holy Spirit. It's unmerited. We don't deserve it. It's the good that he works in us that wasn't there before. He works that in us that we might live and that was true for Paul. Now, when we say this, it doesn't by any means, doesn't mean it's not a struggle, that we don't wrestle, that we don't sweat, that we're not tired at the end of the day, that we don't struggle against temptation, that there aren't times when we wonder, is God really at work at all here? But yet this mysterious, what we could even call invisible grace, because we don't see it as it comes to us. We see its effects upon us as we we work it out. Um, Paul, I think, uh, says it to us in another way that's helpful as he writes to one of the Macedonian churches, this uh, church uh, in Philippi and uh, Philippians in chapter 2. And uh, verse uh, 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's it, isn't it? how How else do you say this? God's at work in me, and I see it. God's at work in me, I work it out. I work out what he's worked in. You see, this isn't like two horses pulling the same wagon. God pulls some and I pull some. He just pulls more. It's that I pull because he's worked in me to pull. Another way Paul says it is in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 29. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. What a turn of phrase. How do you, how else could you say it? I'm working, but I know I'm working only because he's working in me. My working is that evidence of God at work in me. So I struggle. It's real work. It's real struggle. I feel it. I'm thinking. I'm expending energy. I'm tired. I might get hurt. I'm struggling, but with all his energy that powerfully works. 
in me. That's this enabling grace. So what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, yes, this grace has come to you that saved you and and, and now it's to, to enable you, to change you, to transform you, to get you to live in a particular way, to get you to express this faith of yours in a particular way. And this particular way is with this very sincere, with this voluntary, with this gracious and abundant uh, generosity. Paul was always interested in these Christians in Jerusalem who were poor. Uh, he simply always was. If you, if you read through his letters, if you read through the book of Acts, you find Paul always taking up a collection, always being willing uh, to do this for the sake of the poor Christians who were in Jerusalem. He's, he's collecting money for this uh, all the time. Uh, and we know the Jerusalem church uh, had its share of poverty. Uh, it, it started out um, behind the eight ball when it came to, to money and finances and all of that. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, you might remember that there were men who were compelled really to be in Jerusalem, Jewish men from all over the known world. They came from everywhere. And boom, uh, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon 3,000 of them and they were converted. Now what do they do? Only planning on being in Jerusalem a little while. But how do you just leave? Oh, yeah, boom, the Holy Spirit has come upon us. First time like this in history because of the work of Jesus. So, ho hum, let's go home. Uh, and there they were. And so we, we know the, the situation there. So others gathered around, the wealthier ones sold some property and so forth and so on. So they could stay together and they could listen to the apostles' teaching and they could break bread together and they could be together in, in, in one way. And that's the sense in which they began to hold everything in common, not in a, in a communistic way, if you will, communal way, but, but in the sense that nobody thought their stuff was their stuff because we have to take care of each other in this regard. Persecution broke out in various ways. And of course, with the religious and social ostracism that many of them would feel even in Jerusalem, there was that situation that would take place and thus the economic de- deprivation uh, there. Uh, we, we, um, we see it even at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 when Paul and Titus and others gather to talk about what about these Gentiles are becoming Christians. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2 that uh, one of the admonitions to him as he went to the Gentiles was don't neglect the poor, presumably the poor in Jerusalem. A a famine would come and a collection would be taken. Agabus, uh, one of the early prophets in the New Testament, we read about him in Acts chapter 11 in this regard, predicted a famine that was to come. And so they took up an offering to help those who would be famine victims and they took it to the poor in, in Jerusalem. And there was a sense in which, you see, Paul wanted this offering to alleviate um, the, 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 the poverty in Jerusalem of the poor Christians there who were there. But, but not only that, but, but as a, a sign of unity, what could be, what could be a better show of the power of the gospel than to get a bunch of Gentiles who would never acknowledge Jews to take up an offering and send to them to help them in their need? I mean, what a better show of, 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 of the power of the gospel than something like that. And not only that, but there's a sense in which you get the impression that Paul always lived thinking that we as believers, especially Gentile believers, 
owed the believers in in Jerusalem. In fact, he puts it like this in Romans in chapter 15. He writes, verse 25, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, one of his offerings. For Macedonia and Achaia, these churches have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. So Paul says, it all began here. It was these Christians, and they sent us out. And so all of these Gentiles, they should send money back home, if you will, to help them when they're in need. So, so that was the, the sense of it. So he's collecting here these uh, offerings. And it had begun in Corinth at the end of his first letter in chapter 16. Paul tells them when they gather on the first day of the week to make sure they collect some money, save it up. So when he comes, he won't have to do it. He can just take it and go and bring it to the saints in Jerusalem. But why? But why is what's happening in these Macedonian churches an evidence of God's grace? God's grace in them, causing them to be, uh, to be gracious. But it, it's, it's gracious in the sense that, notice in verse 3, it's, it's beyond their means. You know, he first says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. In other words, they only had, they were poor. They didn't have a lot. But they gave beyond what we would have ever expected them to give. And it was gracious because they actually begged to give. They gave of their own accord. They gave voluntarily, or as some translations have, of their own free will. They begged Paul. You can only imagine when Paul was there, he was always trying to collect money for the poor in Jerusalem. But but when you're talking to a bunch of people who are just as poor as the people in Jerusalem, you probably don't give a big pitch about giving money to the poor. And and so he neglected it. And, and yet they knew that's what he did. And so they came to him and they begged him, no, let us help in this. Let us give you money. And he was astounded by that. He says, it was surprising uh, to us. They begged earnestly for the favor of taking part uh, in the relief uh, of the saints. And so, so we see all of that. And it was, it was generous. It overflowed. And, and this uh, verse 2 is one of the, one of the head-scratching verses in the Bible. You read it and you go, wow. He says, for in a severe test of affliction. That's a bit of a technical phrase for persecution. A severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What juxtaposition of words. So you have affliction and abundance of joy together. You have extreme poverty, not just poverty, but like rock bottom poverty. Like there's no change in the cushion of your couch. That kind of poverty. That's, you know, you'd have nothing and you look there and there's, <laughs> you've already found all the nickels and dimes and quarters in the cushion of your couch. So extreme poverty. And this overflowed in a wealth of generosity 
on their part. We, we know that they were persecuted. For instance, what I read for you from the church in Thessalonica in chapter 1, um, in verse 6, uh, he says, And you, that is the church there, became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. This church in Thessalonica, when the word of God came to them, persecution came to them. And so we know that the church in, in, in Philippi, uh, a very a very similar kind of thing. We know that they received uh, the the word in um, with persecution in chapter one and verse twenty nine in Philippians. Um, Paul writes to them, for it has been granted to you, grace to you, really, has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. And so there they are, the persecuted church. No question. So the question is, how did they, in the midst of this severe affliction, in the midst of severe poverty, how did they evidence this grace that was generosity? What worked in them to do that? How does grace cause a people like that to be generous? And, and again, the model is clear, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the model... These churches in, 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 in Thessalonica and Philippi and these Macedonian churches were poor. The church in Corinth was not a poor church. But these churches were poor. And so you, you get what Paul's doing here. He's saying, if they can be generous, fill in the blank. Right? So how is it that the grace of God works so powerfully in that situation, which you would expect the grace of God to work differently. You wouldn't expect these people to give like they gave. So, so how is it? And, and I would say this first, that the grace of God, when it comes really into a person's life, brings with it joy. Because you see, in the test, even the severe test of affliction, they overflowed with joy. And that isn't a giddiness. That isn't walking around with a grin on your face all the time. But that's this unexplainable otherwise sense that no matter what is going on all will be well it's that sense that enables you in the midst of everything to the contrary to kind of stop sit back take a breath close your eyes and just say it will be okay and no you're not lying to yourself it may not be okay in a minute, and that may never be okay, but you know a day is going to come when it's going to be okay, and there's this sense, whatever that feeling is, that's joy. However they would express that, various ones of us feel differently in that, the midst of that, but, but that's the sense of it. You know there's purpose, you know there's good that's really going to come. So the question is, how, why does the grace of God, when it comes into a person's life, why does it produce that kind of joy it did for them? For instance, I read in this verse 6, and you became imitators in chapter 1 of First Thessalonians. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So much affliction, the joy of the Holy Spirit. Why? I think first this. They knew when the word of God came to them the way that it did. That they were loved by God. I don't know what you tell yourself in the midst of great difficulties, affliction, trials, pain.
pain, tragedy, heartbreak, disappointment, discouragement, death, whatever it is. I don't know what you tell yourself, but let me encourage you to tell yourself, if you're a believer in Jesus, that you're loved by God. Get around people that will tell you that, ultimately. Or they may commiserate with you and all of that, that's fine. Bottom line, you leave every conversation knowing you're loved by God. That's the self-talk. That's what we have to tell ourselves. I'm loved by God. Now, how would they know they're loved by God? In the midst of this severe trial and all of that, uh, how do they know they're loved by God? Notice verse 3. Uh, no, verse 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you, Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So they know they've been loved by God because he's chosen them. What a a wonderful thing. I mean, how does a woman know that she's loved by the man who's going to be her husband? He chooses her. He says, I love you. Right? Um, and, and, And so he's chosen them. How do they know that he's chosen them? They know that. Because when they heard the word of God, it came with them, came to them in power and full conviction. That is to say, they believed it. And when they believed it, they not only saw the expression of the love of God in Jesus, but they also saw the expression of the love of God in the power of the Holy Spirit, who would so convince them that this word is the word of God, this word is true, this word is gospel. That is to say, it's good news. It's epic news. It's the news that changes everything. And what's the news that changes everything? Jesus is Lord. Jesus has come. He's conquered sin and death. Not in just a general way, but for you. And then they receive that in full conviction. And you see, once the grace of God has come to us, once we become believers in Jesus, we must never disparage the fact that we weren't believers until His Holy Spirit came upon us and enabled us to be believers. And, and that's His calling card to say, you're mine. I've chosen you to be mine. And since I've chosen you to be mine, I love you. I wouldn't do this for somebody I didn't love. Your mind. So people say, I struggle with this whole idea. How do I know I've been chosen of God? Well, what do you believe about Jesus? You believe that he's the son of God, the savior of sinners? Yes. Do you believe that he died on the cross to save sinners? Yes. Uh, do you believe that he rose again from the dead so that sinners could be justified? Yes. Do you believe he, he ascended and rules and reigns and intercedes for believers? Yes. Do you believe he's coming again one day to restore all? Yes. You believe all of that? Then you've been chosen by God. Because you wouldn't believe that if his spirit hadn't come upon you in power. And so once we come to grips with that, that should produce in us this joy. That no matter what else is going on, I know that God who is my father is sovereign over all things who's wise perfectly. So he knows what's best. He's sovereign. He can do what's best. And he loves me. So he will do what's best. 
And so then verses like Romans 8, 28 uh, resonate with us. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose to which he calls us? The next verse, Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's doing. That's the good that will come out of every situation that God is working in us. The very character of his son, Jesus, the perfect one. And so he's working that in us. That's the good that will come. And so we know that will come. Uh, Psalm 46.10 then finally makes sense to us. Be still and know that I'm God. That's a scary verse if you believe God is against you. The last thing I want to hear if I believe God is against me is that God is present. But he says, be still and know that I'm God. How how can we be still in his presence? We can only be still in his presence when we know that he loves us and that he receives and accepts us, which he does in Jesus for those who believe in him. And so, so, so that verse then I can cling to really. And in my stillness, there is joy. I know he loves me. And I know that what I've been given by him cannot be taken away. And what I've been given by him is everything that's valuable. And what I've been given by him is not temporal, but rather eternal. Notice how they responded in Thessalonica chapter 1 and verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us Uh, from the wrath to come. In other words, they turned away from everything that was their former life, everything they had trusted in, because they realized once they saw who Jesus was, once they trusted in him, that everything else they trusted in was just an idol. It couldn't provide anything that they really needed. And so you see, this joy comes from knowing that God loves us. This joy comes from knowing that what we have in him is everything that we need and that it's eternal and that nothing and no one can take that away uh, away from us. There's a story about Samuel Wesley, who was John Wesley's father. And there was a great fire at the Wesley Parsonage. Samuel was a pastor. And there was a fire in the parsonage and at that point in time, Samuel and Susanna had eight children. And you can only imagine the fear in those days, especially centuries ago, of a fire and, and, and how would the children be saved. And so Samuel was able to get out of the house and Susanna was able to get out of the house. And one by one, the children able to get out or carried out of the house in various ways. All but John, who would become the famous John Wesley, so you know how this is going to end. And uh, it's like watching a television show and you go, that guy's not going to die because he's going to be on next week. So don't, don't fret. But, 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 but there was some fretting going on. And as he counted his children, finally someone brings John. And there was John. And at that point in time, Samuel Wesley says, Come, all my neighbors, and let's give thanks. Because I have all that is valuable. Let the house burn. And see, when we know Jesus... And we know that we're accepted by God. And we know that we're loved by him. And we know that 
all the other things that we trusted in would fail us. And now we have that which will never fail us. Whatever else we lose in the midst of that, whether it's money or whether it's time or whether it's prestige or whether it's possessions or whatever it is, we know that we still have all that we need for all eternity. So you can say, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever, and I'm part of that. And so, let the house burn. And I can live with joy in the midst of that. So this is where this people is. And you see, the grace of God then uh, brings to them a deep love for others. They're willing to, to see the other's need, even in the midst of their own need, which is phenomenal. But, but that's the grace of God. What gets our eyes past our own need when we're legitimately in need to be able to really think of others? That's the grace of God at work. That isn't normal for a sinful human being to be able to do that. That's, the, that's evidence of the grace of God. Sometimes we need to be shaken into that. Sometimes we're, we're in situations where our lives are crumbling and all we can think about is our lives. And I get that because we need to concentrate on our lives when they're crumbling. We can't just avoid thinking about our lives when they're crumbling, when there's difficulties. We know how that is. But a day has to come. Time ha- times have to come in the midst of days when our eyes are off ourselves and we're thinking about others or we'll become so self-absorbed that we'll be destroyed. That's just true. You know this. If you've gone through trials, if you've gone through difficulties, you know a day has to come. When even in the midst of the difficulty, it's going to be there today, it's going to be there tomorrow, it's going to be there the next day. You just get that after a while, it becomes the new normal. And you say, that's just what life is going to be. Okay, when can I stop focusing on myself and get focusing on others? And you know that when you begin to do that, there's something that's lifted. It's the grace of God that enables us to do that. And it no longer than you see is a duty, it's a love. See, people sacrifice tremendously out of duty. People have given lots of money. People have given their lives out of duty. Some of you, sadly for you, are here today out of duty, and that's it. You just, well, you go to church on Sunday, so what you do, I'm sorry for you. The difference between doing something out of duty and doing something out of love is anticipated joy. It's anticipated joy. When you're doing it out of love for country, when you give your life for your country because you love your country, there's a joy in doing that. Right? When you sacrifice significantly, whatever that sacrifice is, money or otherwise, for someone else, and you're doing it out of duty, you're just doing it, oh, hum, let me get over this. I did it, let's forget about it. But when you do it out of love, in the midst of that, even if nobody else knows you did it, there's a deep, an abiding time when you're able to come and close your eyes and take that breath and go, yes, right? No matter what you've sacrificed, that's the joy of it. And there's a freedom in this. You see, this grace brought freedom to them. It brought freedom to them, as Paul writes, to give themselves first to the Lord. That's a huge statement. To turn from idols and to give yourself to the Lord. What makes that happen? The grace of God makes that happen. That can't be done without the grace of God. 
None of us would say, well, I did it all myself. No, no, no. We all know that was the grace of God. They gave themselves to the Lord. They said, I'm going to turn from these idols and I'm I'm going to turn to you. I'm, I'm at your disposal. I serve you. I want to please you. Everything's different now. And they gave themselves to the Lord. And Paul said, then also to us, in other words, to these apostles, they said, all right, we'll let you take up this collection. We'll give you money. Uh, we'll let you take it. We'll submit to you too, because you belong to God and you're our leaders. And so we'll, we'll do that as well. And so he gave them this, this freedom, this freedom from certainly a love of money, this freedom from their own self-centeredness and all of that. And so they now give in the midst of this, this freedom to love others. And they're now free to imitate Jesus. I believe we'll probably have to take this verse up again next week. I can't just not spend a whole Sunday on it. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And we think of Jesus, how rich was he? So rich that he had all the glory that anyone could have. If you think of the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ before he was born, what was life like then, even before creation? What was, what was it like for him then? He had all the praise he needed. He had all these creatures, that these angels that would praise him. He had all the love he needed because he was there with the, with the Father and with the Spirit and there was perfect love there. He lacked absolutely nothing. He was splendor, uh, splendorous in his glory and his majesty and his power, ruling and reigning and all of that. And, and he, he, he left that, he became, that was wealth, he became poor. How poor was he? Well, he went from the infinite to the infant. How poor was he? He took on the span of life as a man. How poor did he become so poor he had to flee to Egypt as a child, as a refugee, How poor was he? He had no place to lay his head. How poor was he? He had to ride another man's donkey into Jerusalem. Even as he faced his death, he had to be buried in another person's, another man's tomb. On the cross, he was deserted by everybody. He was forsaken by his father. How poor was he? He did all of that for people who would love him and, and be grateful that he did it. <laughs> Not hardly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did it for those who hated him, his enemies, the rebellious ones. He did it so that such like you and me could become spiritually rich. And so then, when the grace of God comes upon a person, what, does it, what happens to them? They sacrifice Willingly, generously, for the well-being of others. You can do that because they know that they're loved by God. You can do that because they know they've been given everything that's valuable. They can do that because they're free. Free to love God, free to love 
others for you to give. Now, as I read this, I was wondering, why is Paul talking to them about this? Why doesn't he just pray? Why doesn't he just doesn't pray, God, this grace that the church in Corinth had received, why doesn't he just pray that this grace would, would, would work in them and that they would uh, finish taking up this offering and all of that and be generous? Why does he go through this exercise of giving them the model of these Macedonian churches? And here's why. Because he knew that the word of God was powerful as a means of grace to work in people's lives. And so he told them, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to be sacrificial, to be generous. And he trusted that that word would change their hearts. So as I read this this week, I said, all right, God, I've received the grace of God, so work in me by your word a spirit of sacrificial, voluntary generosity. Take my eyes off of me. Put my eyes upon Jesus and all that I have in him. Cause that to make me joyful because I know that I'm loved. And I know that I have everything I will need for all eternity. And I know that I'm free. That I'm free to love you, God. I'm free to love others. I'm free to take my eyes off myself. And I'm free to serve you. And I thought, I, I pray that God will do that in me. And I pray that he'll do that in you. Let's pray. Father, upon hearing this word, I pray that you would work it in us deeply. That we could be individuals and we could be a church. And when people look at us, they say, that's the grace of God in those people. Not only do they believe in Jesus, yes, they do, and that's the grace of God. But, but look at them. Look how, look how generous they are. And they're generous. How do they, how can they be as they are? How can they give like they give? How can they serve like they serve? They know they're loved. What a gift. They know they have all that they need. What a gift. They're free. Free of this bondage to sin that focuses attention upon their own lives. free to love. God worked that in us. People would know that about us. So that we could bless them in ways that they would turn and give you thanks, that they would turn and put their faith in Jesus. Turn and know that they've been loved by God, chosen by him, given all that they need, filled with joy. Father, we think of those in our congregation on this day that 
need to be told perhaps that they're loved by you because of difficulties in their lives, most especially grieving those who have lost those they love. We pray for Bill Grubbs and his family on the death of his son, Rick. And so we pray for Rich and for Kim and and their family. Pray for Walter Murphy on the death of his mom and uh, Kevin Lee on the death of his uncle and Kristen Herter on the death of her grandmother. There are probably others that we don't know, God, that who are grieving on this day. And so we pray for them that if they're believers in you, that they would know that they're dearly loved by you and that you would fill them with this joy, even in the midst of sorrow. And others who are facing various kinds of personal affliction, whether it be physical or whether it be emotional, whether it be financial, whether it be relational, whether it be uh, spiritual even, that they feel as if there's a war against them. And so I pray, God, that you would come to them and cause them, the believers in you, to know that they're loved by, by you, that you would fill them with joy even in the midst of, of their difficulty. And Father, that you would uh, work in us as a church this, this deep generosity that comes only because your grace has been at work in us. May people see that our generosity is way beyond what would ever have been expected. And this we pray in Jesus' name.